I'm Fathery. This is Dave. This is Brian. I'm Holly. And this is Text Track. Engage. Starship Texas for the 53rd installment of the Text Trek podcast, and tonight we are finally talking about Star Trek Discovery again. We have the season two premiere episode, Brother. Woohoo! Big stuff. It was a long wait, but it, it finally came. And uh, me and Dave are joined with uh, Brian, who has been on the show before, and uh, along with his wife, Holly. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, always uh, the more the merrier. But yeah, so tonight's episode, Brother, it was directed by Alex Kurtzman himself and written by Ted Sullivan and the ex-showrunners Gretchen Berg and Aaron Harberts. But uh, I just want to quickly give everyone a chance to give uh, some opening thoughts on just very generally how you felt about this episode. So I'll just kick things off myself. Uh, I I loved it. There are still some some little problems with Discovery that bug me, and it's just me getting used to this this new era of Star Trek made by new people, and they just do some things a little bit differently. Right, it's like your mind has to kind of like lock back on to like their way of doing things since there's been decades of other Trek. <laughs> right, but in, like every I, I always talk about how there's different regimes of Star Trek, and you have the Berman era for a long time, and you had the original, you know, Roddenberry era, and now we have the, I guess, Alex Kurtzman at this point, uh, CBS All Access era, and uh, it's they, they definitely change up the tone a little bit opening season two, and it's a, a lighter tone. It's a lot of fun, though, and it makes me really excited for this season. But, uh, Dave, what about yourself? Uh, I had a really good time with it, uh, with a, a few caveats, too, that um, I think... This this episode was setting up a lot of different plot lines, and um, so, so some of those ones I feel like I'm not going to be able to necessarily comment on until I somewhat see how they're they're playing out a little bit more. Um, but you know, a lot of lot of different things going on. Uh, weirdly, the thing I think I liked most about it was one of the things I liked most about the 2009 Abrams Trek movie, which was like its energy and kind of can-do kind of TOS style can-do attitude um, and, you know, uh, crew synergy and all that stuff. Um, so odds and ends parts that didn't work, still figuring out some of the mysteries of it. And like, obviously that's going to be the whole thing of the season. Uh, some of some of these mysteries, but getting a sense of where they'll be going next. Uh, but I'm going to overall say I liked it quite a bit. Cool. Brian. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it kind of felt like a 60 minute long hook 
and you kind of feel almost like you should get the Discovery music playing at the end of it as like we're going in. <laughs> that was the five-minute teaser. Yeah, uh, yeah that was the five-minute <laughs> teaser, which, you know, I guess they're cutting it down. It was two episodes last season. Right, right. Now it's only one. Um, but as a hook, I'm intrigued. I'm excited. I honestly have no real complaints at all, uh, uh, no significant complaints about the episode uh, of any real substance, uh, at least on first viewing. I... I don't think they they did a whole lot of things right uh, that I was thinking they were going to mess it up and then they didn't uh, all the way through so I was very pleased I really enjoyed it um, I'm not one of those nerds that gets nerd rage so I actually <laughs> um, like when uh, my shows get new angles, new possibilities new people come in and I'll give them a chance and um, for instance I'm a Doctor Who fan and I was an old school Doctor Who fan still am but there are things I like better about New Who, and so I give them all an open, I, I give all of it an open chance, and I really liked it, and one thing that I really appreciated about uh, season one of Discovery was that while we had um, dark places and went into that brooding area and, and the dark that we do in a lot of modern storytelling, we also kind of had a story of redemption by the end, and I really liked that we could do both dark and light with the same characters and not just stay in a dark place, because I think that's what some of our cynical TV has lacked in the past. Right on. Well, I'm just going to go through a warp speed summary of the episode, just to recap it for everyone out there. So, this episode picks up right where Season 1 ended. The Starship's Discovery and Enterprise are face-to-face, Captain Pike beams aboard the Disco with two of his Enterprise officers. Burnham and Sarek both present, expecting to see Spock, uh, but he's nowhere to be seen. More on that in a bit. Pike explains that there's been seven red bursts suddenly explode in space, and they've all vanished but one. The Enterprise tried to scan the remaining red bursts, but the computer went haywire, and now all the systems on the Enterprise are on the fritz. So Pike, who is a total awesome Starfleet captain, who seems like he would be a great boss, is taking command of Discovery under well, Starfleet orders. That's a lot of editorializing in your summary there, but I agree. <laughs> that's how I do it. All right, all right. Continue. They, they shoot over to the location of the Red Burst, and they, instead of finding a big red thing, there's a big space rock giving off weird gravitational waves. The crew discovers a crashed Starfleet medical frigate, the Hiawatha, stranded on the surface. They want to go down and check for survivors, but the, the rock is, is going to collide with the pulsar in a few hours and be destroyed. Pike and his two officers and Burnham fly some weird little spinny landing pod vehicles. They go through an asteroid debris field, and they make it to the surface, everyone except for the science officer from the Enterprise, who had been a total prick to Burnham. <laughs> but everyone else survives. They find Tig Notaro's character, engineer Jet Reno, who is awesome. She's alive on the Hiawatha and is keeping some of the, the patients alive down there. And Pike and Burnham get everyone beamed up to the Discovery. Burnham gets hurt in the process, though. She gets hit with some super hot shrapnel in the leg. And as she's laying there, apparently moments from death, and everything's going to shit as the whole asteroid is falling apart and exploding, she sees a strange, red, angelic creature. It's hard to make out. But we know from the promotional material is the Red Angel. It's going to be a big deal in this season. However, that image fades away. We see Chris Pike 
because he doesn't leave no man behind or no woman behind, and he rescues Burnham right in the nick of time. They get back on board the disco. Burnham gets healed up. They load the shuttle bay up with some of the weird space rock to study later. Pike ends up staying on the ship to co-captain with Saru and lead the mission to continue this investigation. Burnham learns that Spock has gone on a leave of absence from Starfleet, and she very shadily kind of breaks into his quarters on the Enterprise without permission, listens to his personal log, totally invading his privacy, and, and she learns that he... Uh, again, with the editorialization. <laughs> Actually, I noticed that, too. I was yeah, like... <laughs> that's, that's a problem. We should, Real we should quick, get I'm going to interrupt for just one second. The whole I point of the question, she had permission to go maybe on board the ship, and maybe even into his quarters. And into his personal logs? Probably not that but, stuff. Dave, the whole point of having the warp speed summaries this year was so that you wouldn't interrupt it's, my summaries. It's too bad. It's too bad. <laughs> you can't well, be the only one who editorializes. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, I'll give everyone a chance, but... Yeah, but but essentially she learns that Spock has been having nightmares of the seven red bursts, and he left to likely go have his own investigation. And uh, that is how the episode ends. And so I have just some, some topics that we can talk about. I think the, the first one that we, we should uh, address it has to be Captain Pike. Not so, the fortune cookie? <laughs> Well, we'll we'll get we'll get into that, but yeah. So so, what did everyone think of of Captain Pike? This is the first time we've seen Anson Mount as Pike, a character who has been in Star Trek a couple times before. What do y'all think of the new take on him? Dangerously close to stealing the show. <laughs> I really liked him, and and he was like you like he kind of comes in uh, like a wrecking ball of charisma, sort of under the <laughs> under the ship, and, and 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 in a way that I really liked. But, but like you know, uh, there was a part of me that was like, "Is he stepping on this?" Is you know, this also goes back to the previous season. Is he going to step on Saru's toes or even Burnham's toes as far as kind of stealing the show's spotlight? Um, I like him. I, I like him a lot. Um, he's he seems like he's uh, very um, uh, what's this word? Um, he's he's both can do but also chill. He's not. He's actually not. Ste- goes out of his way to not step on the toes of people around him. Um, he and... doesn't order the women off the bridge. <laughs> yes, that's it. Um, <laughs> that's so that's some improvement. Uh, <laughs> over, the, over the Jeffrey Hunter pipe. Yes, yes. Right. Um, what, what did y'all think? I I liked him. Um, I mean he he seemed like a pretty decent character to me. I did not remember the original show that much, other than uh, I remember, of course, him sitting in the chair only. Doing the yes no, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> boop, boop. Yeah. Um, this I think owes a lot to Bruce Greenwood's performance in the 2009 movies. I would definitely agree. I definitely felt like I feel like I'm watching the Bruce Greenwood Pike. Not that I'm complaining. I'm, I I like that. He was but... one of the stronger characters mm, I think, yeah. in there. Just... I actually like the Anson Mount Pike more than the Bruce Greenwood Pike yeah. because they they and a lot of it's just in the writing here. But like they took the time to give them. Just more little character beats, like when he he steps on the bridge and he has to do the the DNA verification. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like joking around with Tilly, who seems kind of like almost no. weirdly starstruck by by this guy. Well, so is, wasn't he on the list? Yeah, he was on the list for like the most highly decorated captains in Starfleet yeah. history. It's funny uh, t- the way they portray Tilly is she's obviously very capable. But it seems like she, like, sometimes her game face slips. And she <laughs> yeah. just, ah! And that was one of those moments. 
Um, yeah, I, I thought I, I liked him. I liked the fact that it was a little Bruce Greenwood. I liked the fact that he let the women serve on the bridge. I liked uh, his sense of humor. Yes, he's he becomes a huge part of the episode, but Lorca was a huge part of sure. each episode too. Sure. So so the idea that he, that that Saru and Michael can't exist side by side with this guy, I think that. Well, I I'm think, not worried about that at this point. So I think part of the reason why that like bugged me a little bit was that, in some ways, Pike as a captain in the original series was clearly like sort of the Kirk, you know, beta test, and yeah. and so he is a bit of a Kirk type type, yeah, cut from not, the same cloth, cut from the same cloth. Yeah, yeah, not exactly, but he's in that ballpark. But that's what I wanted. Um, that was on my my wish list for season two. Is mm-hmm. I wanted Captain Pike to bring a kind of like. Like old school style Starfleet captain that we mm-hmm. we haven't haven't really seen since maybe uh, Riker a on, right on stuff a right stuff like, captain yeah. yeah I wanted him to have kind of like right like stuff. that that, like six, that that 60s like can do charisma mm-hmm. and uh, kind of just like that really uh, inspirational leader that like the the whole crew can like fall behind and cheer for but I didn't want him to be like a copy of, of like Shatner's Kirk or Jeffrey Hunter's Pike. And I think Anson Mount kind of owns it and does his own thing. Yeah, though he does, he does respond notably when his science officer buys it. They're, they 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 do make a moment out of that, which <laughs> Pike, you know, took the loss of crew members very heavily, certainly heavier than Kirk. In, in his little small two hundred uh, person Enterprise crew. Yeah, they, they they kept that from the cage. Yeah. Yes, uh, I wondered if that was. I mean, I don't know if they'll, if anybody will ultimately worry about like, but that is a big difference between. How it'll be in just a few years when Kirk takes over. So funny you mention that because yeah, they they do clarify in this episode that there's 203 people on the Enterprise, which was the compliment in the the TOS episode, the Cage. I think they're running where, lean because of the war. Well, well, whereas I mean that was the Cage was you know two years before the war. So That's true. You, but yeah, what we know from the original series is that typically there's uh, 400 people or a little over 400 on the Enterprise during like the Kirk era. But in this episode, on one of the the displays on the Discovery Bridge, it actually uh, shows that there are 430 people on the Enterprise. Oh, really? It says, like, there's 430 complement, but, like, one is missing right now, so it's 429. Okay, that was just their little... It's an Easter egg about Spock. Yeah, but uh, they kind of goofed by putting that in there. (laughs) Which was sad, because, like, oh, that's, like, a really cool inclusion, like, putting the uh, cool little background detail, but... Yeah, I I mean that, that that's clearly just a continuity error. Um, uh, but I, I would be curious to see if they ever mention you know why it was running with such a relatively skeleton crew. I think it'd be easy to come up with reasons for it, uh, including maybe having pulled some of them even from their five year mission on the outer rim or whatever to uh, for the war effort. Well, they or, said they wouldn't be able to well, get back in time to make yeah, the difference. I guess, I guess that's true. I, maybe no. maybe as the war was ramping up. They yeah. pulled some of the officers and crew members. The, the, the Enterprise was so uh, damaged in this episode that it had to be hauled off to space dock. So I'm thinking it's about to get like a major refit. And maybe like they take off some of the equipment and they're like, oh yeah, like we have more space now. We can stuff people we, in it now. Yeah, we can, <laughs> we can, we can double the, the crew complement. Yeah. How, how was it damaged? Well, they don't. They don't really because it wasn't in the red burst. It wasn't in the war. What What I'm guessing happened is that they said that all the all the systems started malfunctioning when they scanned the red burst. Right. Yeah. And 
So, that is a, that's a rough scan if it disables a whole ship. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the, I mean, that, like, it makes sense in what they're setting up. Is they're like, well, obviously these aren't a natural phenomena. This looks right. like something that someone is doing intentionally. Right. So the, right. There's like, is it a signal? Is it a warning? We don't yeah. quite but know. I do hope they remember this when they do find a red burst in the future that they don't shouldn't just oh let's scan it. <laughs> Imagine they're like no 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 no. <laughs> but also just to circle back to something that that Brian mentioned a second ago about Pike, and then, and then we can move on to uh, to something else. But uh, about how he he takes it real seriously when when someone under his command dies, and that was. With, that was really weighing him down in the cage. Is after the the Rigel mission, where, mm-hmm. he, where he had people serving under him who who beamed down and didn't beam back up, and that that kind of always inspired a thing. Whenever there are Star Trek novels or, or something that, that uses Captain Pike, a lot but that of times, was a thing for him. Well, a lot of times he's not only that, but he's written kind of uh, like almost kind of like depressed, like mm-hmm. where he's like the hardships of command, and they really focus on that, right? And one of the reasons why I think the cage doesn't work as that great of a pilot as where no man has gone before is because it's really weird to introduce a character, a main character, who is like, I don't really like being here. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And right. I, I I would prefer that Pike doesn't have like that default state of mind for his entire yeah. career. I like that just being like, yeah, he was having like a really bad week yeah. after well, that. And I think mission. that the, the cage is a bit of an arc for him. By the end of it, he's realized he wants to go out and do the, do real life and not just live in some safe fantasy land, yeah. which most of the authors kind of forgot because they grabbed onto what they had and what they had was, oh, he's kind of not sure he wants to be a captain. Yeah. So, I was going to say, wouldn't that kind of come after you've lost too many in your crew? Yeah. Like maybe you accept that sometimes I'm going to lose someone, but if it seems like you've lost a lot of people, you might begin to wonder, is there something I could have done differently? Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm not the best captain because I couldn't figure out not. Yeah. How not to to lose these people? So I don't see that necessarily being how he always is, but I could see if it ha- if he faced quite a few losses, how eventually that could get to him. Yeah. Then and that when you have a character who is just going to be like every time you see him, he's just going to be like so like full of guilt yeah. and just like. Like that's not that's not gonna be like is entertaining to watch. Right, we're, is... Suddenly we're in Jeffrey Sinclair territory from Babylon <laughs> Five. Right. I was at the Battle of the Line. Like, um, Actually, I, I think, think that I think that can be entertaining, but I think it's 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 a hard show. It's tough to build around when you want to have some energetic optimism. Yeah, and you show. need to build an arc into it. Just random. This year we're doing a Captain Pike novel. You yeah. know, they, 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 there wasn't much of an arc to those books, uh, as far as I can tell. It was just randomly if somebody had an idea. Um, I will say, as far as uh, not being in the war was really tough for us, I really wanted Burnham to say, it was even worse if you were in the war. <laughs> <laughs> just well, kind of. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's say something about that, is I hate their excuse for the Enterprise not being in the war, that they were like too far away on their five-year mission, mm-hmm. they couldn't have made it back in time. It's like, well, you don't know how long this war is going to last. It could be 10 months or 10 I years. I see, reading, this might be me giving them too much credit, but, you know, there, there was the talk about why Spock would say, well, why would they keep us out here if we're just going to come back to nothing? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You were the lifeboat. You were the thing that made sure that humanity got away if everyone else died. That's That was what I, under, I read between the yeah. lines there. That's why they don't That's call the Enterprise back. Well, now, I, it's just me projecting that. Maybe that's not what the writers were thinking. Here's a more optimistic take on it. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> it would almost have to be. Uh, uh, is that um, 
that, that, that because science is so foundational to the Federation and the optimistic future that Roddenberry created, the, the idea would be that you also never know what's going to come from it, that having a ship out there exploring the unknown, finding new things, is actually could be just as valuable an asset. They can't send a lot of them out, but their flagship or one of their flagship mm-hmm. types could actually ultimately do just as much for them if they, you know, if they discover something new, make an alliance, who knows what. Well, Star- Starfleet's still young. They haven't learned that you take the... En- Whenever there's a problem, you drop the Enterprise on it. They haven't figured <laughs> right. that out yet. <laughs> so. That's right. Lots of problems what, solved out there, not a lot at home. What right I now. would have done that I think would have worked better and still would have explained their absence during the war is I would have said... I would have borrowed something from Star Trek First Contact and have said... The Enterprise was patrolling the Romulan neutral zone to make sure the Romulans didn't try to take advantage of the Klingon Federation war and try to like annex some Federation territory. I think I, I, it didn't bother me at all. I, I thought it was a reasonable, was... quick explanation that also allowed for to, to drop the five-year mission concept back on the table again, just to remind you that that was something that was going on before Kirk. I was surprised. I mean... I just assumed the Enterprise did fight in the war. I, I had no... I was yeah. like, really? It didn't? Okay, okay. I, I just yeah, assumed I they were question, out there. I guess, what, 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 what story point does it serve that they that they were not there, other than... They're not all traumatized and battle-hardened and grimdark. I guess I guess that's it. That Yeah, they kind of <laughs> came back with a little, like, Pike, like, it was tough for us to not be here, but presumably, yeah, they maintained their general kind of optimism we didn't have to compromise our ethics and moral beliefs and stuff. <laughs> right. but we will get a non-canon version of that story later this year they just announced they're releasing a novel i believe it is called the enterprise war and it is uh, about pike and the enterprise during the federation klingon war but you mean it's gonna like right out of the gates contradict this no it's gonna be like they're not they're not in the war it's oh, okay it'll still be were, the five-year what they were time. doing okay instead yeah. And I, there, there are some interesting stories you can tell with that, because you would be like, oh, Spock, apparently there's this mutineer, someone named Michael Burnham. Have you heard about this? <laughs> and like, oh, yeah, that's my foster sister. There's a reason why I never mention her later. <laughs> I have to admit, I hadn't thought about that, but that would have been a conversation between Pike and Spock. Oh, wait, wait. One, one other thing about Pike. Is he like a stand-in for Alex Kurtzman with like some some of the way he's talking? Is he like talking to the audience where he he, he mentions like uh you know Lorca being the captain, but he's gone now. He he betrayed you, and I promise not to do that. Is that kind of a acknowledging meta- Brian Fuller? Like wasn't really working on Discovery. He was off uh, trying to get American gods up and running, and so he got like fired. Like he betrayed Star Trek, or or he also says like keep your expectations low and you won't be disappointed. Right before the really cringy comedic scene with uh, with Linus the Saurian sneezing on a guy. Uh, I forgot he said that. Uh, he definitely like his his thing at the end could easily could be interpreted on uh, a very meta level. Let's that, ruffle some feathers. That that was the only place where I thought maybe they might have pushed their meta a, a skosh too far because relative to the conversation the two of them have been having, it just felt really weird that he we're gonna go rustle some feathers and have some fun and <laughs> right. like, why would you say that unless you knew a camera and a bunch of uh, concerned Trekkies were watching? <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> But uh, uh, um, enough about Pike. Let's back off him a little bit and talk about another classic Star Trek character who is making his return to Star Trek, and that is Spock. Right, or rather, lack of Spock. <laughs> well, we see him in flashbacks, it's and, true. and we hear Ethan Peck does perform in this. We hear his, true. his we personal see, log. There's baby Spock and Spock voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, they're obviously going to build up to the so reveal of, of Spock. What they're going to do is a search for Spock. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a season-long search for Spock is what it sounds like. I have this feeling that they may cross paths with him before all before they get to the end of it. Yeah, initially, I, I was thinking that's just a gun uh, expectation. Yeah, yeah. And initially, I thought it would be something that, towards like the end of the season, especially because it took them so long to announce who they had cast as Spock. But I'm thinking it might be sooner rather than later. Now, mid season finale, when they when they first show him as a kid, it's it's when they are. Uh, introducing uh, Sarek and Amanda, or maybe just Sarek. No, Sarek and Amanda are introducing Michael, uh, Michael Burnham to Spock. Yes. Uh, Spock is distracted. He's playing with his like little digital reader thing, or like his art, his, his little art, his virtual art program. Art thing. Yeah. yeah. And 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 I was uh, I, my first thought was that Spock, his angry response to her uh, from creating a scary uh, giant dragon, virtual dragon, and scaring her it looked like. The Sir Snake from the animated series episode with the uh, the Aquans. I was wondering they, if they it had a specific water. reference. Oh, well, that's a deep but dive. <laughs> I'm a deep dive. Uh, yeah, the uh, the because uh, <laughs> they're underwater. I, yeah. I see what you did there. Um, uh, I I feel like uh, since these dreams that we've been told about have been prophetic, and we found out, don't we find out it's from one of his dreams? Right, because we, at, the, at the end he says, I've, I've been drawing my nightmares again. We're going to see this thing before the season's out in the flesh, right? Um, I don't know. Uh, I wonder if we will. I bet we will. Um, I hadn't thought of that. But, yeah, but I hadn't either, but I like it. Um, that they but, just sneakily reveal yeah, the big bad in the first episode. <laughs> it could be. Um, but, but, but yeah, I thought that he was a little... It, was, it felt like too emotional an outburst for him. And yet... This is Spock at his youngest and feeling threatened by, you know, someone with his parents. Uh, but it did read a little big to me. Maybe a little, not quite uh, like a Vulcan slam would be. It, it, it was very, like, on the nose. He also, the, threw, he also closed the yeah. door on her face. Uh, but, what, what did y'all think? Young uh, Spock? About young Spock? Yeah. I, I thought he was okay. I, the door slam was, like... Okay, I guess. Uh, I mean, maybe he just got beat up by all those other Vulcans today and really yeah. hates humans today. And yeah. he's real just, you know, and it was just a bad day for him. See, I kind of, like, thought there was something deeper going on. I mean, the door slam, I guess that was the moment where he first meets her. But he, there's like a scene where he walks in and he sees her reading Alice in Wonderland mm. to mm-hmm. Michael. And I thought... Sorry, I, I should have named where Spock sees Amanda being a mother the sees this motherly affection mm-hmm. towards uh, Michael and I thought there might actually be some jealousy going on. Totally. Because he you know, because his he, you know, in him being Vulcan, he's not allowed to have this emotional connection with his mother that this other human girl yeah, is getting. Yeah, these humans can openly do that, and, mm-hmm. and he can't. Right. It would be interesting Vulcan. if he had, yeah, yeah, like, notably made a point to kind of push away those sort of affections from his yeah. mother, only to see them and really want them. Yeah. yeah, and they established that in Journey to Babel, where it's, like, one of my favorite moments in all of Star Trek, where uh, Amanda, like, like in tears, it's, like, a great performance, mm-hmm. and she's talking about how, like, it was, it, it was so sad... Watching her son, knowing that he wants to to love you as his mother and be affectionate to you, and 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 just watch him be restrained and not be able to do that, and how yeah. she was sad for her son, and like and and Spock obviously like carried those feelings into adulthood. So so yeah, seeing someone who can do what you like your your heart's desire, what you want to be doing, 
and, and just be openly affectionate with your mom. Yeah, of course that's going to make like a, a little angsty Vulcan kid. Yeah, yeah. Who's already struggling with his emotions and, and knows that dad yeah. will judge him. Yeah. if he goes and gives mom a hug. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and I could totally see how because not not only will his parents judge him if he has these human emotions, but they're be. But he's part human, and she's fully human, and they are accepting of her humanity in a way they aren't of his. I don't. I suspect Amanda's perfectly accepting yeah. of Spock's humanity, but Spock doesn't want to be that person mm-hmm. on a conscious level because it will disappoint Daddy. Well, so. <laughs> speaking of disappointing Daddy, I, I thought that, and this 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 really goes to Sarek's performance uh, portrayal throughout the first season and into this is that he doesn't seem quite the harsh disciplinarian and logician that he is in Journey to Babel in the original series. He's sometimes even rather warm towards Burnham. Yes. And he talked about wanting to see... He had hopes that she would teach Spock empathy. Um, And that that, that didn't quite necessarily always ring true of the character we will see. And how how far ahead would would that be, timeline-wise? Um, like seven years. Yeah. At this point. Um, although it did lead me to like a weird pet theory about something, uh, that, that, that something else in the episode. Uh, the, the suggestion that, um, Burnham tells him that he might, she might be the reason that Spock, um, isn't, isn't visiting with her. Yeah. Like there's something that went on between them. She says, well, it's my fault that Spock right. and I don't talk anymore. This hadn't even occurred to me, but, but I guess it's maybe out there. Um, and my brother thought, is like, did they have a romantic? Uh, I heard someone say that the other day. I was like, no, this isn't Game of Thrones. Like, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I know they borrow influences from that show. Right? Like, well, here's the thing. Uh, uh, on a, on a, this could be A, Ponfar, and B, I don't, I don't think that they would go to the place, that place either. But on a purely logical level, the only taboo against it would be a cultural one, which is just a purely abstract thing that would be easy for a Vulcan to say holds no merit if they had a connection at some point. Yeah. They're not genetically related. I don't know. Given the way they set up their relationship, I have trouble imagining that they got together in a romance and then went back to being all kind of cool and hostile to each other. uh, My brother briefly suggested, and this was just a casual theory. I don't think it quite works, but... Like, what if Spock actually, part one of the reasons he joined Starfleet was going after her? And Sarek, when he does, who maybe doesn't know about it right now, maybe she's repressed that so mind melts haven't turned it up. When he finds out that, you know, Spock made such a wildly emotional, the most human of emotional decisions uh, to change his whole career based on that, that that could actually be what kind of turns him so harshly against his son's decision, which he seems otherwise accepting of in Burnham's role in Starfleet. Yeah, I... That, I, I could see that. Now, I kind of don't think they're going to do it, because they, 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 I don't think they want to get within a foot of incest. Yeah. yeah well, it, but it's not incest, because they're, no. they're not genetically yeah. related, and that kind of occurred to me, too. Or it's I wondered, just the little vibes a little close wondered to wondered if well, maybe it was a teenage Spock having his first pawn far yeah. and not knowing what to do, because teenagers don't know what to do when they go through their first... Yeah. Uh, you know, puberty as it is. And I think they could write it in such a way that, yes, it isn't too squicky and that, you know... It's going to be squicky no matter what you do. That's, that's, no yes. matter what you do, it's going to be squicky. Yeah, what the, I kind the, of the like, though, is that... Michael, like, yeah. like, like, the, like the anti-Michael Burnham yeah. crowd, they're going to be like, oh, this show is ruining Spock. 
There's an anti-Michael Burnham crowd? Uh, yeah. yeah. It's new Star Trek. Since there's new, it's going to be haters. There's got to be haters for anything new. She's a phenomenal new. actress in a co- with a complex character. How can yeah. anybody hate her? I, I actually... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm really fond of... I call her, I call her Mickey B. I'm, I, Mickey B is a badass. Like... A lot of people accuse her of being a Mary Sue, but she's she's not like no. yeah she's incredibly capable, but she still makes mistakes and she still has a bunch of emotional baggage. Yeah. Like like by definition, less of a Mary Sue than Kirk was. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna I say think, she doesn't well, seem like someone's fantasy because she's gone through a lot of dark things right. and and everything. So no, she doesn't strike me as a Mary Sue at all. She strikes me as a a complex character. Mm-hmm. I With, think and the actress is phenomenal. I mean, like she really holds that character well, and it's really good that we have. I mean, she makes a a wonderful and interesting protagonist. Mm-hmm. You know, we we talked earlier about the difficulty with uh, like uh, was it Jeffrey Sinclair's original portrayal of Pike and how that might have Jeffrey been... Hunter. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Hunter. Hunter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mixing up my we're Babylon we're Five. Talking about Babylon Five. Really. Yes. Yeah. Sinclair is not not in right. Star Trek. Jeffrey Hunter's portrayal. <laughs> Well, I'll save that for the Easter egg. Then. Okay. <laughs> he did. He did have that sort of darkness about him, and and Burnham did have. She she has a lot of angst to hold on to in season one, and sometimes it's it's tough to for fans. Sometimes I think to rally around a character that goes to those dark places, especially in Star Trek, when in a show where the people who were ready to react harshly to this were ready to react to anything that was grim dark, and there was some of that in the first season, and you've got some pretty vibrant characters in Stamets and Tilly. And even Lorca was a sort of, in his way, more kind of energetic and upbeat, if cynical, character. Hmm. So I think it's hard. It's hard to portray kind of a sometimes darkly serious character as a as a lead. And I and I and I do think like on some level, even I struggled with that a little bit. Even though I really like Burnham, uh, I, I can at least understand. Uh, I don't understand hating her. Uh, I understand like maybe not finding her as vibrant as some of the other crew members. And that's almost like any leader type role on a show. Buffy experienced it, and, and I was about to make about a comparison. Cyclops in the X Men. It's sometimes those characters can end up feeling a little bit like they carry the dramatic weight of the show, but they don't get to always be the 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 fun, energetic scenes. Anyway, but uh, so we talked we talked about Pike. We talked about Spock. Uh, what about some of the other characters on the show? You know, what, one of the things that I talked about really wanting to see this season was more from the secondary characters on the bridge. And they definitely and I went was, out of their way to address they that. They gave them names and they got to speak this time. I noticed, like, all through the first season, we didn't know what their names were, yeah. and they didn't speak. Well, they, they do mention their names, like, occasionally, but, like, it's super, yeah. like, it doesn't stand out. Like, like they might say, like, Reese's name twice in the show, and I think Bryce, they say it one time. and yeah. But if you're not paying attention... Yeah. They, they they had that somewhat. Like, I mean, I'm gonna say contrived, but I don't mean it in a negative way. Um, uh, Pike asks them for their names. He's like, I want to know who I'm talking to or whatever, and they just boom, reel it off, and it's right? a kind of energetic bonding scene. I really liked it. Yeah, I, I mean, I did. It was was it scriptish? Yes, but that's because Pike is deliberately trying to yeah. manipulate these people into a crew that will serve him, and he can help them. And right, yeah. he's trying. He was to, trying to bond. Team building. It's a yeah. good. It's a good so, character moment so for, the, for Pike. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and so I, I thought it was, you know, yes, it was scripted, but yes, that was in universe. It's supposed to be scripted. It's and it's then not, not, only, not only that, but then they they utilize some of those characters more when they do the. The big action sequence where they're they're taking the landing pods from the discovery to the asteroid, 
and Detmer and Owasakin back on the bridge. They're like hel- they're helping them uh, they're navigate and uh, con- remote controlling their their thrusters on their suits mm-hmm. and, and you know stuff like that. Like they kept them involved in what was going on more than really anywhere in season one. No. Right, it felt a little bit more like maybe kind of how they somewhat used the supporting cast of Star Trek, the original series, in the movies, when they started making them a little bit more vibrant. And, and Dave, I know one of the things you wanted to see was the, you wanted to see the bridge become, like, you know, the magical I to, place. I want to see the crew gelling. Yeah. They totally did that. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. out of the gates. Um, yeah, so I, I really liked that, and I felt like... The bridge, which hadn't been a major, always a major source of the action in the first season of uh, Disco, uh, absolutely was in this one. Um, a lot of stuff took place in, like, you know, uh, science bays and, uh, I guess, or even sick bay or, or quarters or Lorca's ready room. But the bridge wasn't that big a thing in season one. So, uh, yeah, it just feels real tricky. <laughs> yeah, well, I think they... Season one had a lot of people having private conversations. There was a right. lot of that, and that's not what you do on the bridge. Right. Except in old 60s Star Trek when Kirk would step aside with Spock and somehow nobody else was supposed to hear the little <laughs> private conversations that right. they would have. But um, but yeah, I think I also... It was dramatically lit. Yeah, No yeah. one could possibly hear what they were saying yeah, with yeah. that lighting. But I also want to say, I think they turned up the lights on the bridge a bit, which would yeah. make sense since Lorca with his eye problem isn't there anymore. That's the but, same uh, thing I thought. I was like, okay, uh, we got rid of the, the, the weird mirror universe captain who wanted all the lights dark, so can we can we turn the lights up now? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little lens flare. No. <laughs> there was definitely no! some lens flare. There was definitely lens flare. In fact, I did feel a, like a lot like I was watching... Like some sort of alternate universe version of Star Trek 2009, mm-hmm. just in in beats like oh they put the co- brightly colored spacesuits on, they do the crazy folly thing. Yeah. Pike is there taking charge and doing taking names yeah. and giving orders, and and this Pike isn't a million years away from Bruce Greenwood's. I think the hit it line is actually yeah. Greenwood. Right? Well, he says punch it. He said punch, punch it, punch it. Like, okay. Real close. Still right. close we, enough. We can't to... do the exact same thing, so we got we got to change it. Yeah, from from. Punch it to hit it. But yeah. the look of the show, though, like I, I love that they, they have more color. Things are brighter. Yeah. And I wish that he had not switched to their uniform, that they had switched to his Enterprise uniform. That, that would be cool. But my personal theory about why they, they have the lens flare and the bright lights is, hey, it's like why people in Norway and Sweden actually bother to light their houses. Mm-hmm. When it's dark all the time, you get really depressed. So you need like a <laughs> full spectrum natural lighting and, and, and Starfleet is mindful and, and it maybe it's like an OSHA regulation. I like so. it. I yeah, like Star Trek totally would be mindful. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like the cinematography is, is a big step up from season one. It, it, the show has a very cinematic quality to it. I know, like, if you want to get, like, super filmmaking-y technical about it, I know, like, they switched to uh, anamorphic aspect ratio, yeah. and it, it looks really good, and the, the effects, the CGI is better than most anything you see on TV. Oh, for $8 million an episode, it darn well better look good. I but... think they, they've increased the budget. Wow. At least for, at least for this episode. But that's one of the things about why Aaron Harberts and Gretchen It's a very effects episode. Yeah, you know, the, why the, the showrunners at the beginning of season yeah. two got fired was because... The, the two things that are reported was that, one, they were being 
mean to the the writers that worked for them, and the other one being that they they went way over budget. But yeah, definitely shows well, in this well, episode. It looks great. But there was a tradition to maintain. We always whoever wrote the first episode gets fired at the beginning of this by the, <laughs> by the time the series is launched. We we're going to see Kurtzman well, is going to be out. At new the traditions of for a new era. Yeah, yeah. Kurtzman has that five year contract now, so I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, well, as oh, long, he, he'll mission? be okay yeah. as long as he doesn't write the first episode. But <laughs> so. I will say this, as good as it looked, the uh, drop sequence in the little flyer ships, I didn't really care for. So I thought it was well executed, but Mm -hmm. I would have preferred if they were just like on a a single shuttlecraft and they maybe have to do like some more uh, badass flying maneuvers than typical. Yeah. And you could still have like, you know, some danger and some action. But yeah, this is clearly them like showing off their budget and like what's what's like the, the, the coolest thing we can do, the most exciting thing we can do. But that being said, like I thought it worked well. Yeah, I, I mean, the idea was the asteroid belt is so crazy with the gravitational fluxes that we need our most maneuverable craft, and apparently that's these things. Right. So. And they had a good explanation for why they existed when Burnham said, yeah, one time we had a mission where there was some similar gravitational anomalies, and you know we had to use these vehicles. I actually know how to fly it, so let's go. The... Um... I think what, what the only thing about it is that it didn't feel super trekky to me. Uh, like right, quick, like a, a shuttlecraft twitch flight. You know that feels like a video game sequence where you got to like play it ten times in a row to finally get through or more, and you get really frustrated and you throw down your controller. Uh, it felt a little too much like that for me. And Trek just usually doesn't kind of go to that kind of twitchy piloting style. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I would have just used the shuttlecraft. I, yeah. like I, I, I felt like I was watching 2009 Star Trek. I was like, that feels exactly like a sequence out of that franchise. Well, this yeah. episode was directed by the guy who, who wrote that. Yeah. So, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I, In this particular context, I thought it worked fine. Yeah, actually, the, the stuff that I felt that it drew on from that, from Bruce Greenwood to some of the kind of uh, almost not quite walk and talk, but they, they had a lot of fast-paced dialogue in it. Um I, I, the, most of the stuff they took from or seemed to reflect 2009 Trek I liked just that one sequence didn't do it much yeah. for me but that's another thing is there is like a high energy fast paced nature to this episode it's an, an hour long I think it's the longest Discovery episode but it, it never really feels like it, it's dragging on and it, it's very dense like they pack a lot into it yeah and uh, I thought most almost every line was like pretty on the mark i was like nope that's that's how i would have written it that's how i you generally when uh, i'll like no that that's not how it should have been written and oh i would you should have said this and not that i'm very picky on lines and i was like no that's that's it that's it that, that's better than what i had the, the writers on discovery are are really big star trek canon loving continuity loving people yeah if you think about like how like the show is written uh my good friend starfleet boy who has been on text trek in the past and I've appeared on his podcast, The Rogue Drunk Space Nine. But uh, <laughs> one thing that he wow. brings up is that if Discovery was a radio drama, a lot of these complaints that people have about the uh, the canon issues, about like the, the aesthetics and stuff, like wouldn't exist. The way that the show is written, it's just like some of the, the production design that people have like a hard time seeing, oh, how does that fit 10 years before Kirk and stuff like that. And I even have some issues like that the the two that really stood out to me in this episode was the turbo lift thing when we see like the inside of Discovery mm. and it's fucking huge 
Yeah, okay. That bugged, me. that bugged me. That bugged me. That really bugged. Like, is this the TARDIS? Is there like more <laughs> <and> more <laughs> space in there? What scene? What scene bugged you? The, the the inside of the turbo lift? Yeah, they showed the turbo lift car moving through the tracks, and there's this vast open canyon. Oh, right. Space it's like a roller coaster. Is, it, is that is that another weird callback to 2009 Trek with its vast interiors and huge? Well, they never quite did that turbo lift thing, but yeah, you'd need yeah, a they, ship they, like they the size of it. They never did anything that annoying in, in 2009 Star Trek or <laughs> any of the Kelvin movies, and, and also that gravity simulator at the end is like unfold. It's like a transformer. Like I want to hear like yeah. a transformer sound effect. <laughs> right, I was thinking Guaul Tech from Stargate, which was all that flip flop, flip, yeah. folds out and deploys. <laughs> And they had the same with the helmets. I was like, clearly Starfleet made contact, first contact with the Gua'uld and have assimilated their technology. <laughs> yeah, like suddenly the, we have all this flip, 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 and, and it, out it kept and growing. It was getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. I was like, what? Am I watching like Fortress Maximus? Is he about to turn into like Autobot City? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little, well, you know, throughout the, the whole the run of Discovery, they've periodically played with tech that doesn't seem quite traditionally Trek. Foremost in season one, I think, was that there were holograms around, which... In, our, in my head, feels more Star Warsy. Uh, Star Wars does it all the but time. I, I can explain that though. They had to abandon the hologram communication because it wasn't secure, and they didn't want like Romulan spying on them. Right. You can explain it if you have to, but this gravity simulator is hard to explain. That, right. It, it didn't. It, I, it looked I, like I it, it went from it. nothing to a lot of something. But it, they, they, continue. They said. All right, Mr. CGI man, we need to have this machine come up that will catch the asteroid. And you have a quarter of a million dollars to do it. And like, well, for, I don't want to get fired. If for a quarter of a million dollars, it better do something pretty impressive. Right, it can't just be a little platform. No, no, it can't just be a machine that comes up on an elevator. No, it's got to be something worth a quarter of a million dollars. So, so that's exactly, I think that's I think your problem. explanation is almost certainly the right one. Yeah. In my head canon, the explanation is that is like some advanced alien technology that they found somewhere and kept on the ship. Sure. Maybe, maybe Lorca, when he was like finding all, all those weird weapons he kept in his Disco was clearly room. playing around with, with some weird stuff. So. <laughs> with, with the helmets, by the way, with how the helmets unfolded, which that, that stood out as something weird to me too, because in Star Trek they always just take the helmet off of the EV suit. Yeah. But we did see it malfunction when Pike couldn't get his helmet to come down. Yeah. So maybe that's why they stopped using those. Yeah. They don't work that great. I will give them this. They do have a big enough backpack in the back that I guess you can imagine all those bits fold into that backpack in the back. So unlike well, where's some... Where does the oxygen go? Uh, well, they they just have a reprocessor that strips the CO two and back into uh, uh, O two. Oh, oh, that makes sense. Um, as long then as why did Bellana and Tom Paris almost run out of oxygen? Because and... that only lasts as long as your battery does. When your battery runs out, then it stops stripping. Yeah, okay, but, but you got to be able to get. You so. would think with future tech, you'd get a lot a lot of hours. I mean, I I just I, how many hours was it for Bellana and Tom Paris? It was, it was a while, but. Uh, yeah, maybe like they didn't recharge the batteries since yeah. like the last mission. Yeah, you know, ever since Iron Man's armor started forming up on him in the movies and in the comic Extremis storyline, everybody's been doing that. I, I miss people putting on helmets. <laughs> I really do. There's something cool, and either like it's either kind of cool in a soldiery way, or it's cool in like a medieval knights kind of way. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I don't like I don't like just on some basic instinctive level, I don't like armor that does that or like. Uh, environment suits see I think it's kind of cool because I mean who wants to have to carry a helmet with them (laughs) it does seem I do because I look so cool when I put it on (laughs) yeah yeah, but then your hands aren't free to use use tools and other things and you know you can't leave that helmet or you die yeah but like people people who ride uh, bikes people who ride motorcycles like 
if they wear a helmet, they're always like stuck carrying their helmet around wherever yeah. they go. So it's purely an aesthetics thing. And it doesn't mean like realistically, and you know, the quasi realism of Star Trek. You know, they they could be pushing te- a lot of technologies further. I still like them using communicators that they got to flip out, um, even though w- well before that era- timeline happens, we will probably have. Completely invisible communication that's Bluetooth. Well, stuff. yeah, but are they going to have a range of forty thousand kilometers and, tra- and transmit faster than the speed of light? Yeah, just because the effectiveness of a Starfleet communicator is a lot more impressive than, say, a sat phone. So, well, but I bet they could have made that still more invisible had they wanted to in the Trek future. Uh, but but I, I like the old school aesthetics. Obviously, it reflects sixties design sensibilities. Is the practical reason for it. Um, and I and, I, and I just, I like the more physical stuff like that. Well, enough about the helmets. Let's talk about Tignataro's character of Jet Reno, mm-hmm. who I think is one of the best, was just with this one appearance, she's like one of the coolest Starfleet officers I've ever seen. I would definitely like to see her again. I almost, as I saw her go, you know, she has the makings of a good complex supervillain. <laughs> okay. Because she's like... You know, playing around mad in an unconventional way and mad scientist. And I love good, unconventional mad scientists that <laughs> have some bits about them that you can identify with and they aren't just pure evil. But she's clearly a good person. She, right, she, she stayed, is a good person. She stayed behind Until we find out that she's like, chopped up all those people. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. see, I, I wondered. I just saw her like, she... This isn't Galactica. I just saw her and I was like, you know... I could totally see her as like a Forbidden Planet style, you know, like like Morbius, Doctor Morbius. Yeah, and 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 I mean, because because the effects of being isolated that long, I could totally believe you start out as a good person with good intentions. But what happens when you're isolated from real <laughs> human contact? Do we for a do long we know time? if she's going to be a recurring character? So funny you say that. Uh, I was told by Mike Moody, who runs the... He's, he's here in Austin, Texas. He runs the Star Trek Discovery Pod podcast mm-hmm. um, with, with with people people that, that we know. He's, he's with uh, Grant Davis and Ashley Marino. Yeah, they, yeah. They're really good. Y'all should totally check them out. But he informed me that Tignataro had posted on Twitter or Facebook somewhere that she is going to be in more episodes. I couldn't find that. So if it is not true, don't blame me. You you blame, you blame Mike Moody at, at Star Trek Pod on Twitter. But I can't see why they'd spend so much trouble introducing the character and then never have her show up again. Yeah. It would feel yeah. weird. That's but I, I do remember something from the trailers with her in it that we don't see in this episode. Yeah. So it's either a deleted scene or there is more of her. Yeah. I would love her to be the chief engineer on Discovery. Ooh. Be interesting. So, um, I think off mic really we talked about this a little bit. Uh, that, that like uh, there was somebody else who like the the humor didn't land for some of her, some of her dry humor didn't land for me. The way it does okay. with say McCoy, who she resembles uh, in that dry sarcasm a little bit. I, I love her her deadpan delivery, so it, it mm-hmm. worked for me. The the only humor that didn't work in this episode was Linus the Saurian, who is an asshole who sneezes on people. And I don't know how yeah. you can be in Starfleet and work with humans and not know 
Yeah, sneezing on someone is one of the most rudest things I can do in an elevator with someone next Especially to Especially when you're infected. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe shortly thereafter it, he was uh, locked up in the brig and sentenced to a lifetime in prison like Burnham. Yeah. Well, clearly whoever watched this episode didn't know anything about infection protocols because I, I, I get that, what was it, Tellerite blood? Did I remember yeah. the species correctly? Yeah, right, yeah. I, I get that their blood is different from humans, but it's still really weird to just see a doctor whose hands are covered in bodily fluid saying, here, well, let me just take... Not a doctor, it's an engineer. But it's still... just motor oil as far as Or if she's evil. Pike has gloves on, he's wearing EV suits. Yeah, yeah. So. Maybe, yeah, yeah maybe... That's, that's true. I, I keep forgetting. Yeah, she's an engineer. She's been isolated. That, that She's could- had 10 months of nobody to talk to, so her social skills have gone to shit. Yeah. I get the impression sense. even before this, her social skills might have been a little dodgy. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe the guy who sneezed, maybe his, his mucus is also a cleansing agent. Oh, my, my explanation <laughs> It was that, going around. That was what was yeah, particularly well, uh, I, I think that Saurians <laughs> don't sneeze very often, and so that was like the first time he's ever sneezed, so he didn't know to like cover his mouth or cover, <laughs> cover his nose. But, but let's just be honest, it was a bit of slapstick that, that was a little bit work. goofy. Yeah. I, I know what was going on with that scene. They said, remember Keenser sneezing acid in Star Trek Beyond? We need an homage to that. Uh, <laughs> the other thing, the other piece of humor that didn't work for me was with Saru's threat gangula returns to the, the other guy and he's like, really? You're surprised? Yeah. Like, that, that felt a little forced. And... What, was, what was the deal with that? Like... When Detmer and Owasakin are talking about, like, oh, yeah, this debris, turns out that it explodes. And then Saru's gangula pop out. Yeah. And there's this guy on the bridge standing next to him who, who's, like, staring at that. Mm-hmm. And Saru just turns around to him and he's like, oh, really? You're surprised about my threat gangula? <laughs> right. I was like, well, that seems unnecessary. Yeah. yeah. But longest episode of, of Discovery ever. Like, y'all really thought that needed to be included. Gonna trim <laughs> that up. <laughs> Um, but the, I, I still like Tilly, and she's kind of funny in here a little bit. Um, I love that she actually called the ship Disco. I now guess that's canon now. She's the Mary Sue. If you're talking about who's the Mary Sue, Tilly is think... clearly all of us Star Trek fans oh. who want to be on the Enterprise and how we imagine that we really would be. Or be, and, be on the Discovery. And, yeah, yeah, to be yeah, on the Discovery yeah. and, and how we imagine we'd really be if we got to be in Starfleet. So... And and the fact that she's growing, you know, she is she's the Mary Sue. Yeah. Well, Mary Sues usually are hyper competent, and well, Tilly has certain talents. That's for she's sure. She's like she's like Barkley becoming hyper competent. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. some sort of hybrid between well, Barkley and Wesley. You know, yeah, yeah. So. She, she, she's, she's not less there yet. Than they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> Um, yeah, she had a few big scenes, but didn't uh, didn't get command a ton of screen time. But I I, I always liked the character, uh, yeah. and I liked her minimal interactions with Stamets, who I'm not sure where they're going with. Yeah, I don't think he's actually leaving because yeah. they, they they do talk about him leaving, but then at the end when they get like the the dark matter rock on on board the ship, he seems that he he's, gets he's, he gets science hyped. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, stick me some of that science, the good stuff. Yep. <laughs> I well, I don't think he's actually leaving. He's a main character. It's just how are we going to get him to stay? Yeah, he's got his name in the opening credits. Like he's, yeah. he's, he's good. He ain't, he's he ain't going not nowhere. leaving. <laughs> I think I think he's like third billing. I think it was Sonequa Martin Green, then Doug Jones, then Anthony Rapp. All right. Uh, oh, the opening credits. They changed that a little bit, and yeah. I wish they had changed them more because I I want a complete overhaul of the opening credits. I, I don't like like the weird like earth tone color scheme oh. and. 
I was surprised they kept the giant space flower thing trying to grab them. Yeah. But I was like, oh, are we going to get to... I, I, I thought that was a reference to the space whale in the Harry Mudd episode. And I thought, are we going to get another space whale or something? <laughs> yeah, they, the, it the seems the like they may be essentially like keeping the, keep the original one, phase in a few things. Maybe each season phase in a few more or something like that. Yeah, I kind of thought they would do that. But I'm, I'm surprised they didn't change more. Like, they still kept, like, the tether and, like, the two hands reaching for each other. Yeah. And, I don't know. I wish they would have replaced it with some more stuff. I like seeing well, Captain Kirk's Enterprise captain's chair, but... I heard that this season is going to have something of a science versus religion bent, and the, right. the hands reaching for each other is obviously God, God and Adam yeah. from the Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. I think Wasn't he the one? Or is that... Although the hands reaching... Yeah, that, that was Leonardo. Uh, Michelangelo. Yeah, Michelangelo, sorry. Was it, was it, yeah, I don't know oh, much okay. about real <laughs> history, but... Um, <laughs> the hands were in season one, right? Yes. Yeah. So I can kind they of see why they might another... say thematically that's still useful for us. See, right. I always thought that was about like Tyler and Burnham not... Not being able to like stay in their romantic relationship, and the last episode of Discovery being called "Will You Take My Hand." That was, that was the last episode of season one, so it's kind of like we can't we can't stay together. It's a tricky thing about symbolism; you can't quite pin it down. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it saves money to recycle. But I have a feeling, you know, the, their original notion with Disney's Fantasia, which fell apart, they, they they only made two Fantasia movies, was that. Each one would keep some of the old, bring in some new. And presumably after a little while it would be almost all new, but, you know, they'd probably like keeping Sorcerer's Apprentice or whatever. I wonder if they're essentially doing that with this, with these credits, you know. Uh, and so that like in, like by season three or four, it'll be all new. Well, I hope so. I would like it to be, I always say that Star Trek Voyager has the best opening credit sequence of any show. And Enterprise has the worst. So Dave, don't fucking do it either. Like don't, don't sing See, the song. But, I don't know. I like Enterprise's opening. <laughs> no, I, I I hate it, but mainly because like I hate the music. But Voyager is so cool. And all those beautiful sh- shots of the Voyager going through like nebulas and going over ice rings and down. You don't by like suns. the real space history shown in the awesome Enterprise. See, opening. I like the opening credits to Enterprise. That's about all I like about that show. But I really <laughs> liked the opening credits. Here, here. I, and I love that song, so... Uh, oh, you're going to get thrown out, Fathery. You're going to get thrown <laughs> out on the podcast. Guess who's not going to be back on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Holly. Yeah. Someone else can edit this. But oh. oh, is that a forbidden thing to say? <laughs> no, no, it's, no, it's, no, it's, no, it's encouraged, in yeah. fact. No, we, we, we encourage infinite diversity and infinite combinations oh, on, on text track. It, even and if it those all gets combinations, fixed in edi- editing. That's right. Even if sometimes those combinations are Fathery's wrong ones. <laughs> leave a comment and let us know how, how you feel about the uh, Enterprise opening credits. <laughs> Has anybody ever thought film? about this before or, or formed an opinion on it? Uh, do we want to just quick say what those what those new uh, icons were in the opening sequence? Did we say that yet? Um, I don't have like a full list, but they were things like the Starfleet badges, Captain Kirk's chair, and... Um, we, we, we There's will a transporter about room underneath the tra- or pad underneath yeah. the badges. Well, we do, a lot more attention than I do. When we do our <laughs> season two uh, overview at, at the end of the season, we'll definitely break down everything that was changed in there. Right, and uh, yeah. see see which what you know we can now probably confirm what reflected what. And uh, just another thing uh, that I want to bring up, a, a big thing I was hoping for would be better shots of the ships. <laughs> Just right, give me the shit porn. I want. I want to look at these these beautiful without the disco these, color lights all over. Yeah, it. I want to see like these well lit, beautifully designed John Eves starships. And I got so much of that in this one episode. Yeah, 
No, it was the ships looked like Star Trek ships. Yeah, I don't know if that's any more realistic than how they looked in the, season like the, one. But. The three tugboats that are that are tractoring the the Enterprise away at, at the end, and and they have that in, in the background as a Burnham and Pike are having a conversation. Yeah, it's on a view screen. Yeah, well, it was a reflection in the window. Oh, okay, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I I loved that, and I loved like just. At the beginning episode, some of the shots of the Enterprise and how like they linger on the Enterprise because that was a big thing I wanted in season two. I want like better looks at these at these starships. The comparison we made was to like the way they film the action scenes in the uh, what are the, what's the action movie series spy movie Matt Damon Mission Impossible or the Born Identity Born Identity yeah where the, you have these really frenetic fight scenes but you kind of can't follow the geography and the staging of it too closely. <laughs> You know, it's like sometimes you want the camera to pull back a little bit and really give you a, a sense of it. And since Trek has such a tradition of cool ship design... Uh, I would say the coolest so. spaceships of any space franchise. I agree. Any Galactica or B5 uh, contenders? Uh, there are some cool ships in Star Wars. Yes. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that B5 with the rotating might be a little more realistic. But they don't look as cool. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Um, but I, I think we've we've covered a lot on this. Um, does Does anyone else have like a topic they're just like dying to get off their chest? Well, uh, did you? How did you guys feel about uh, Burnham breaking into Spock's stuff in in the? At the oh end? right, oh yeah, totally creepy. Like, I think it was. I mean, I, what I got from it is that probably it's a it's a dramatic expedience. It's. I think we're probably not supposed to reflect too much on the breaking and entering creepy part of it and and to just kind of accept it as this is just how they're moving the plot forward. See, it is a little clunky though because it's hard not to think that it was creepy to just start reading his journals and stuff. Yeah, that's like the sacrifice of them doing like this high energy, fast pace, you know, keep things going, keep things mm-hmm. moving type of approach that, that does have a lot of advantages. But yeah, if if we need something, you know, explained away a little bit more, if, if they had established that they have reason to believe Spock is in danger... Or if, if they had established that Pike wasn't okay with Burnham doing this, but she's like breaking the rules and doing it anyways. See, right, because she knew something or another. See, I actually, again, probably giving the writers too much credit, Pike conveys to me that, yeah, something's wrong with Spock, but as his captain, I was not able to do anything about it. He asked for leave, I had to give him leave. And, uh, but, yeah, why don't you go over? To the ship, <laughs> and and the underneath it's like you know you're his sister. You can I won't say anything if you don't say anything. You, you see if there's something we need to know, you find out. If it's not if it's not something we need to know, you're his sister, so you're the best we got. You know yeah, the, the, that that actually is is a pretty good way of explaining that. And uh, I I wish that the writers had thought about that because I'm not convinced that they did. Did they? Yeah. Is there an after track episode? They don't. They canceled after track. Uh, after track. Now they're doing Facebook Live with a guy from uh, I think it's called the Kind of Funny YouTube Show. They like I don't know. It's something like kids watch. where like weirdos play video games and talk. I, I shouldn't say weird. Like they seem like really cool people. Uh, kind you would of never funny. have anything just, to do with weirdos. It's well, no. It's just like. <laughs> I, like I'm not like one of these twelve year olds like get on YouTube and like watch people like live stream video games and stuff. But yeah, they have like one of those guys did like a red carpet thing that was live on Facebook, and they're gonna make that like a recurring thing that they do like right before the episode drops. Really weird because it was Is live. It showing the pre- they're, they're showing the premiere, right? Well, yeah, that's what they did this time, and they had Shazad Latif who plays Tyler on Discovery, who wasn't. 
I guess didn't know that it was live, and he talked about how you know, like, oh yeah, I just saw all these other actors when I got back into L.A., but I don't remember because I was really drunk and high on mushrooms. So <laughs> now I kind of feel like now like I'm seeing them for the first time. <laughs> so like the, the kind of funny guys, like you know, we're live on Facebook. <laughs> He's he's just exploring the mycelial network. Yes, okay. yes, yes. He's getting uh, the character. But um, any, anything else that uh, you feel like we need to cover, or should we just like move into Easter eggs and wrap her up? Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. I'm intrigued. I'm I'm hooked. Uh, the um, the the science versus faith thing will be is, is certainly a potent uh, ground for stories. Uh, it seems a little weird at first to have people on Star Trek, especially the two Vulcans, or trained, uh, raised by Vulcan people. The not ch- quite Vulcans. Chasing after angels uh, is, is a kind of a weird thing. And I sort of wish that maybe the uh, Red Bursts had been described with a little bit more detail, although I know they don't really... They, like, they when can't they, scan it. They tried to scan it, but, <laughs> but I guess for something as big as that is, like they're like, we're going to like put a lot of effort into this for just something that they couldn't scan. But I guess they know it's something important that they couldn't well it, they were literally just like red bursts it's like these these seven big red things lit up and then went away yeah Except and then when they one, tried to scan one it shut their ship down they did say that something about like because the odds were so against that this happening everywhere it clearly was some kind of unified thing you know like mm-hmm. a civilization and intelligence was behind yeah. it it wasn't some it, it was a coincidence. non-natural but but like thing. i say it feels a little bit like chase, chasing after dreams and angels feels weird for vulcans but i think it's supposed to so i'm i'm on board to see where they're taking it i, I don't know wasn't there a pretty terrible star trek movie where there was a line like what does god need with a starship <laughs> something like that well do the characters who better. look slightly but, demonic are now chasing the things that look slightly yeah. angelic. Symbolically, <laughs> there's a certain resonance there. And sometimes yeah, I forget the Vulcans have been around so long that you know Spock was originally described as satanic, right? Yeah. And they like yeah. I think used that, that in his that was, character that was description. Gene Roddenberry's like original idea. Yeah. Like, he, he wanted them to be red for a little bit, and like he wanted them to be yellow because he didn't think he'd get away with red. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't look good on on camera, so they stopped doing the the yellow paint on the face, but. Um, so yeah, if that's all we got. Just like one last thing I want to mm-hmm. say, and then I'll jump into the Easter eggs. I loved the last Jedi style subversion of we think a red shirt is about to die. It's like, <laughs> nope, it's the guy in the blue shirt who's being a dick to burn him. That's what he does. <laughs> yeah. The uh, you know actually I will be thankful if they push away the red shirt in joke just because but they did like, something cool with it. They they, right. they twisted it around. Right. No. No. Right. I, I think this. Is, I would say that's an F, kind of an effort to do that while still maybe get a little wink and a nudge towards it. Uh, you know, I kind of yeah. I'm not wild about the in joke as far as like the I guess the meta version of it where people are you know like yeah there's there's there were people on the Enterprise Kirk didn't care about and would just send off to die or whatever. Like it's funny a few times, but but you know I'm ready for them to kind of move away from that. Um, so yes, I actually agree. It's funny. <laughs> it was it's a good way to kind of acknowledge it. It was kind of like the, some comic book writer said at one point that you can't just write Superman rescuing a cat out of a tree these days. Like if if you do something like that, you're gonna have to put like a weird twist on it. Right. It's it's a commentary on something <laughs> or yeah, but. Uh, so I, I think we're just going to go ahead and move into Easter eggs. So, right. so that's the thing that we're going to do this season is I'm going to make a list of all the Easter eggs in the, the episode. And if there's anything that I missed, be sure to comment and point it out to me and let me know. But uh, I'm just going to run through these. As soon as Pike beams aboard, he mentions uh, Mojave. He says that when he grew up in Mojave, he learned that the best way to get into a cold stream is just to like, jump right in. 
So that's that was something set up in the cage. It was that he lived at Mojave City or something that looked like it might have been like a terraform from the Mojave Desert mm. with his horse Tango or Mango or whatever. <laughs> uh, we have uh, a Jordy LaForge style visor uh, on the transporter chief. Oh, yep. I did not notice that. But they also like added additional equipment to it. Like he's got like a bunch of hardware on top of his head. So it's like, okay, this is like a more primitive right. version. Might need like more hardware to like interface with his brain. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a screen that displays Robert April's name, the original captain of, of the Enterprise uh, that we, we know from the animated series. We have uh, some classic Trek aliens being used. We have Linus the Saurian that is an asshole who I hate. Uh, Jet Reno mentions a Bolian. Uh, there, uh, the, the science officer, Evan Connolly, mentions he had a roommate who is part Cation. So, so Dave, I owe you an apology, apparently, you say it Cation. <laughs> yep. But, yeah. Which like, is how I pronounced it, but you're like, no, no, you're all wrong! Well, <laughs> I always thought it was, like, uh, Katian, but, uh, Cation, who was M. Russ, the cat lady, on the animated series. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that was a deep cut reference... And the, uh, oh, the other one is a, a Barzan, the engineer non from the Enterprise. Uh, that species was established on Next Generation in the episode The Price, I believe season three, where there's the Barzan wormhole. Oh. And they're trying to negotiate for, and like the Ferengi are trying to, to acquire the rights to the wormhole. And you know, that species was the Barzan. They have like little breathing things on, on the sides of their mouths. Yeah. So that was from the Next Generation. So that was another thing that me and Dave wanted was to see like more classic aliens. Yep. First episode, they're already giving it to us. The uh, USS Hiawatha had the registry number NCC-815, which is probably a reference to the Flight 815 from Lost. That's just, that's a kind of an odd one, but uh, <laughs> if they were taking something from Abrams' movie and he produced that show, I guess, is that the link? I, I'm thinking. or I think maybe Alex Kurtzman worked on that. Yeah, so, just uh, that that could what? be, yeah, or just a little tip of the hat to his 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 old uh, Star Trek buddy. And we also have the Lorca fortune cookie fortune that was left in the ready room. Yeah, I love that. that. Yeah, that was it, awesome. it, yeah, it read, "Not every cage is a prison. Not every loss is eternal," which is referencing both Pike's past and his future. From what, what we know happens to him, mm-hmm. we know that before this episode, he was in a cage, but he got out. And we know in the future he will have a loss where he gets uh, paralyzed and stuck in a mechanical wheelchair that for some reason he can only communicate through binary. <laughs> but that's not uh, an eternal loss because he will get to go live in an awesome uh, fantasy world with this cute blonde chick because Spock is a cool bro who takes care of his captain, <laughs> yeah. his former captain. He sends him off to holodeck sexcapades for the yes. rest of his yeah, life. Basically. <laughs> so... Um, so that's a better ending to a story than Kurt got when a, a bridge falls on him in his <laughs> generations. <laughs> and then um, Pike tells Burnham uh, that Spock presented logic as the beginning of the picture and not the end. That is similar to something that Spock tells Lieutenant Valeris in Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country when he tells her logic the is the, be- the beginning of wisdom, not the end. Yeah. And I... I kind of feel weird about them using that because I always pictured that as something like Spock learned like in his older years and like Star Trek Six. I did sort of assume that that was something that came out of Star Trek, the, his experiences in Star yeah. Trek, the motion picture. But 
Or yeah, like when he refuses to do like go through with the, the complete the colonar, and then he does kind of become like a little bit more of a, an emotional older Spock. After I think he, that. he makes peace but, with himself by the end of that movie, and I kind of felt that that tied in with that. But again, just fan theory. And then Spock's quarters on the Enterprise was full of Easter eggs. It's located at Section Three F, which is where his quarters were located in the original series. They weirdly look a bit larger now than they looked on the original yeah, series. a little spacious. But he... he but had, you know, when there's only 200 people on board, yeah, he's yeah. like, can I get the bigger... Oh, yeah. We just knock that wall out and I'll have... <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, it should be it should be bigger now. Yeah, and then when they go up to 400 people, they have to, like, reduce the size of his, yeah, his, yeah. his room. But we see his Vulcan loot. We see the 3D chess set. We know that him and Kirk love playing 3D chess. And we see, like, the ceremonial bells from A Mock Time. I was I was wondering had we seen those before at all because that seemed like a kind of a weird thing to keep around because that's he, he has such a specific his, ritual he had those in his quarters on the original series okay so that's all I got with Easter eggs so uh, I had two one I'm pretty sure that the idea of a medical frigate exists only in Star Wars before this point it's a weird terminology yeah yeah a frigate is a military warship uh, the idea of attaching yeah. the word medical to it I'm pretty uh, sure wait a it's minute. all. They were fighting a war. Wouldn't they have a military warship for med- or uh, the military have a medical vessel? They were just fighting. Yeah, a but big the war terminology they- <laughs> you, would go, you know, a, 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 I don't. A frigate is a, a, yeah. a an offensive it's, it's warship. It's like saying like I have like a hospital freighter. Like yeah. it's, it's like why would you just say like a medical ship? Yeah, but it's because in Return of the Jedi, there's a line that actually says going medical after the medical frigate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. do you actually so, think that they were referencing that, or do you just think that maybe the terminology just kind of crept into their minds? Oh, yeah, I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but it's it it, it seems to have it, it could have been just seeped in that that's a thing that really exists now. Um, Concentrate all your yeah. your fire on that super Borg destroyer. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and the other thing that I'm pretty sure I'm just projecting is that. Burnham, when she's got her leg all messed up and she's looking up and she sees this big angelic kind of figure of a savior and then it dispels and out comes uh, Pike walking towards her and I remember that Jeffrey Hunter played Jesus Christ. And I was uh, like, <laughs> "Yeah, Pike is Jesus." Yes, Pike is Jesus. <laughs> Where did he play Jesus? Uh, he, he, he was in a movie before he oh. did, did uh, Star Trek. I before he did the Cage. I yeah. Think. Oh. So. Um, I, I so a, that was my I'm pretty sure I'm just making that up in my head but it, it made sense I like it yeah <laughs> I had a weird visual double take that I think I clearly miss saw this since no one else has commented on it and it's it would be kind of obvious when you're seeing the various injured people that uh, Tignataro aka uh, Jet, 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 Jet Reno, Reno. Uh, is, uh, is is healing up there's one that who, that looked like they were wearing a next gen uniform to me uh, where it looked like you had the top part that was the darker color, and there was a little com badge there. Like, uh, I think it was just like visually, just a, there was probably like a blanket or something on him. It, it, it just looked to me like next gen. It's like the third yeah. person you see when the camera's panning around. Uh, Maybe someone from the future fell back in time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> since, the, since time travel and none of that stuff is part of this, there would be no reason for it. <laughs> but. Uh, take a look at the scene and just see if you can spot the person. That, that was an Easter egg. It looked egg, like it to me. That's setting up the Picard show. <laughs> we yeah. should we should like make a video of like the red circle with the arrow pointing at that. We'll get into uh, <laughs> we'll get into real deep conspiracy theory jump. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so that, I think that's all we got on uh, Star Trek Discovery season two episode one brother, but not to be confused with brothers the next generation episode with Data and Lore. Uh, next week, we will be talking about episode two of season two, New Eden. 
Sure. Not to be confused with The Way to Eden from <laughs> the original series. But there's been a lot of Star Trek episodes. It's going to have a lot of titles. When you, when you, after you've done like 700 titles of episodes, it's hard not to like double down. And but Well, that's where, where we get things like the lamb cries, not, or the butcher cries not for the lamb or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We, we also have an episode called Emissary and an episode called The Emissary. But <laughs> There's a couple of first contacts out there, too. Yeah. We have a movie first contact. We have a TV episode first contact. Are there any called The Enemy Within? Because that seems to be a popular name. <laughs> that, that, that is taken. It was one of the first episodes of Star Trek. Yes, so one yes. of the first ones out the door. Yeah. Of all science fiction. They love that title. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so so next week we'll be talking about New Eden, directed by... Have you ever heard of some guy called Jonathan Franks or Frakes or something like that. Some, I'd have some to Google TV him. director. Yeah, I feel I like he know. might have been like uh, some kind of guest star on Star Trek. Actually. Okay, yeah. So I thought he did things with alien autopsies or something. <laughs> oh no, I know who he is. He had he used to host that show uh, Fact or Fiction on on Fox. Oh wow, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. Yeah, so that what guy. a great find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm glad he's still getting work in Hollywood. So directed <laughs> by Jonathan Frakes. So uh, yeah, be sure to check that out. Uh, we're we're doing these every week on Sunday nights. And as always, uh, like, subscribe, let us know what you uh, think and any any continuity discrepancies that you pick up on in Discovery. Help me keep a list of those because when we do our season two wrap up at the end of the season, I'm going to attempt to explain all of them away. Yep. <laughs> so we'll see how well I do at that. But yeah, so th- we're going to sign off. So until next week, live long and prosper, prosper y'all. <laughs> Thank all of you so much for checking out this installment of Text Trek. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please be sure to like our YouTube videos and subscribe to our channel. Uh, audio-only version of episodes are available on our website, www.text-trek.com. Uh, please check out our site, especially if you just want an audio-only podcast. Uh, we have that available for you. Y'all can also keep up with us online. You can follow us on Twitter, at TXTrek, or you can uh, check us out on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash text-trek. Please, by all means, let us know what you think by dropping a comment anywhere you see fit. Uh, We definitely want to hear your feedback. Let us know what you liked and what you would like to see more of, what you would like to see differently going forward. If you want to email me directly, uh, go ahead. I can be reached at fatheryactual at text-trek.com. Thank all y'all again. Take care.